Hey, Nate. Yes, Sam. Did you ever think about where new diseases come from? Are these new diseases or are they just coming from different species like pigs and birds? Right. There's swine flu and bird flu. But what other species might transmit diseases to humans? And why does it seem like there's more interspecies transmission now than there was before? I don't know. Hey, I I got got a question question about that. Welcome to another episode of Hey, I Got a Question About That. I'm Sam. I'm Nate, and this is a podcast and video series where we talk about all of the research going on here at the Penn State Everly College of Science. And today on the pod, we are joined by Nita Barty. She is the Huck Early Career Professor and an Assistant Professor of Biology in the college. And Nita studies human health and infectious disease. How does she do that, Sam? Let's find out. So we are joined here in the studio by Nita Barty. She is a Huck Early Career Professor in Biology and the Center for Infectious Disease Dynamics here at Penn State. Thanks for joining us, Nita. Thanks, guys, for having me. Um, Can you tell us a little bit about your research? Yeah, so in a nutshell, I would say I work on um, how human movement and behavior influences infectious diseases and how they spread or how they're managed. So I work on diseases that include things like what we hope to be eliminating or where where we're at the end game, so things like measles. And then the other side of that is um, for diseases that are emerging. So how is human behavior uh, impacting the emergence of new diseases? And across the spectrum, um, for both things we're trying to eliminate or we're at the end game of and um, emergence events, human behavior and human movement, and the links between the human um, dimension and the environment play a huge role. And so one of the things you're working on is actually looking in bats, right? Yeah. That's a weird organism, it seems like, uh, to be studying this kind of thing. And what type of bats are they? So these are, um, they're called flying foxes. They're teropus bats. They're very large fruit bats. And the particular bats that we're looking at um, or that are involved in this um, system that we're working on are only in Australia. And they are black flying foxes. And so do do you get to go to Australia to... (laughs) <laughs> I do, and these bats are very soft. <laughs> <laughs> soft bats. Very furry, yes. And what what disease is it that you're looking at in, in the bats? Yeah, so these guys have hendrovirus, and they've probably had it for centuries, and it's been fine. And the reason that we're interested in it now is that it's been um, spilling over from bats to horses to humans, since kind of the mid '90s, that's where it was. That's when it was first identified, and that has only happened in Australia. But a very closely related virus, Nipah virus, um, has been spilling over from bats to pigs to people in Malaysia, and directly from bats to people in Bangladesh and India. And um, that has been a cause for huge immediate public health concern. And so, if the bats have carried these viruses for however long, way longer than a few decades, I guess. Why is this becoming an issue now? Yeah, so that's really the question, right? What's changing? Um, And from our perspective, we don't think that there's major changes in the virus um, or the viruses themselves. What we think is really 
driving a lot of these changes has to do with the human dimension and the environment, and certainly the human impact on the environment. So deforestation and loss of bat resources and bat habitat is a huge um it's, it's massively changed in the past sort of 20 or 30 years, and that has changed a lot of where bats are and what they're interacting with. How do you track these viruses to know that they're going from bats to horses to humans and not just from bats straight to humans? Yeah, um, it's a great question. So with hendrovirus specifically, um, what we know, I'll tell you what we know and what we don't know. What we know is that it looks like hendrovirus can only go from bats to horses. And horses then amplify the virus, and they can infect a number of other species, including other horses and humans. Um, there haven't been any documented cases of the virus going directly from bats to humans. And that's the kind of thing we'd be really likely to know because it's a very dramatic infection. It's not something that would go undocumented. Um, what we don't know is why horses. So we know that horses are not native to Australia, but we don't understand what makes them special um, in that they're susceptible to hendrovirus, where it doesn't look like anything else is. Um, other animals that are direct that may be directly exposed to hendrovirus have not been documented as infected um, from bats. And do you know sort of the the mechanism of how that virus is transferred? Is it through guano or something like that? Yeah, so what we what we know is that um, you can find the virus in the urine of a bat. And so what's likely happening is sort of the large-scale um, environmental changes that have led to the bats physically overlapping um, in areas where horses might be. The bats that may be feeding in those trees briefly overnight and urinating on the ground below is probably one of the ways that these horses are getting infected. Um, it's because the horses are eating the grass or whatever that's growing there. Yeah, they're either, they're either inhaling it or ingesting it. So, yeah, they're grazing on the grass, but then they're interacting with the virus and they're either inhaling it or ingesting it. And um, that's how they're getting infected. We don't know uh, what the dosage has to be, but it probably is low enough um, that those spatial but non-temporal encounters are leading to spillover events. What's the disease or what are the symptoms that hendrovirus causes? Like how important is it to kind of public health? Yeah, right. So um, it's an emerging disease. Do we do we care if it emerges? Why would that matter? Um, so Hanipa viruses are respiratory and neurological pathogens. And um, what we see in horse and human patients um, is severe respiratory distress and uh, neurological uh, symptoms. And so with horses, we see sort of loss of coordination and they're, they're generally euthanized because it's quite awful. Um, and with people so far, I think we have had seven human cases of hendrovirus. Four of those have been mortalities. And um, with hendra and Nipah viruses, full recovery is not a guarantee. So if there's neurological damage, certainly um, patients will have long-term neurological deficits in a lot of cases. Um, and in some, I don't know how, I, I've never personally seen this, but some um, 
sort of family members and relatives or acquaintances of patients will of survivors will report personality changes with the Nipah virus survivors. Um, I I don't know what that looks like, but I think that's fascinating. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Not really an authority on Nipah virus, but that's crazy. Do the bats exhibit any symptoms when they're carrying the virus? Yeah, so the bats are reservoirs for the virus. So when I say they probably had, um, they've probably been carrying this virus for centuries, they don't show any symptoms. They're um, just reservoirs. Uh, they are completely unbothered by it. As you're studying this interaction, what what are you hoping to learn? And is it about sort of preventing those spillovers from happening in the future? Yeah, what we really want to know is really what's the cascade of events that's leading to these spillovers that we've been seeing for the past few decades, but not before that. And um, as we go through some of these environmental shifts and land use changes, we want to know how we can prevent these cascades from playing out. So there's a lot of different steps um, along the way that lead to um, spillover events. So we want to know what are all those things Where do we interrupt the process effectively to prevent spillover events? And how do we do that in a way that's actually ecologically restorative? And that's really the the trick. How do we return the system to a place of stability rather than pushing it further to a place where we're not seeing spillover events, but we're not in sort of this this same – let me say that again. So you could – one could pave all of Australia and eliminate the trees and the bats, and you probably wouldn't have hendrovirus spillovers anymore, right? But that's not really the resolution that we want. There have been other sort of famous cases of these virus spillovers, like HIV coming from simian IV. <laughs> um, is there sort of general things that you can learn about these kind of events by studying Hendrovirus and the bats? Absolutely. I think that when we see emergence events, um, viral uh, emergence events, that there are some commonalities underlying these, um, these events. And those tend to be some kind of shift, right? We generally think about um, the host, the pathogen, and the environment as the three things that are linked together when we're looking at um, infectious diseases. And What we see with a lot of these events is that there will be some environmental shift that allows for spillover. And overwhelmingly, there's a change in the host or the human behavior that really amplifies that, right? So if we were to get spillover events that were completely decoupled from human behavior, we probably wouldn't have a lot of the amplification in the human system that we have. And in this case, I'm considering horses part of the human system because they're domestic horses. Um, And so, you know, I I really think that there's a huge human element that drives forward um, the amplification and the transmission of these viruses once they've jumped species. So I know that in some of your a lot of your research, you use satellite imagery to sort of track movements of, of people and, and things like that. Are you using satellite imagery in this case? So we are. Um, so satellite imagery is great because it's this large-scale passive surveillance tool. There's a lot of different types of satellite imagery that are collected, but there's a lot of it that's underutilized and that you can actually repurpose to detect things other than what they're initially intended to detect. 
Um, in this case, we're using satellite imagery extensively to look at the changes in land cover. For years, people have been using satellite imagery to look at deforestation um, and changes in land use and land cover. In this case, we can use it to go back in time a little bit to look at sort of loss of specific species within forests um, that we think bats are relying heavily on. Um, so we're using it for that, and then we're also able to use it to really document closely the spatial increase in human populations. So looking at how uh, human distribution has increased and how that directly impacts the loss of forested areas for these bats. Um, and that will give us some insight on where we can restore and where we would like to restore some of this habitat. So can you tell us a little bit about what this habitat loss looks like and you think there's anything that can be done to reverse that trend? So we know that there's been a lot of deforestation and loss of vegetation in Australia. Um, the rates of forest loss in Australia are amongst the the top 11, the bottom 11 in the world um, in eastern Australia. So that's uh, really sort of rapidly uh, declining habitat. Um, not all of it is super particular, or not all of it is directly related to these bats. So these bats um, prefer certain species over others, as sort of any animal would. Um, so what we want to do and what we're working on is to specifically measure the loss of those species within forests and uh, quantify that and then strategically restore or replant or protect what's left. Um, the trouble with that is a lot of these vegetation species, a lot of these tree species uh, are somewhat unpredictable in the resources that they provide for bats. It's not that they'll um, provide, so these bats eat nectar. It's not that they'll bloom and provide nectar every single year. So a lot of the robusticity that's built into the natural system is based on the diversity of the trees that the bats will use. And we've certainly lost some of that. And so restoration efforts will we'll really need to be careful about what we're building back into it. And one of the biggest challenges here is that when you go from replanting these particular eucalypt species to getting anything useful out of the bats for them. It's a 20-year gap before they really start producing um, this nectar and these, these, these blooming events will happen um, that these bats can use. So that's a little bit of a challenge. That's a long-term strategic effort, obviously. It's not going to be an immediate effect. So I imagine these bats have to have a pretty big range to in order to find trees that are producing nectar at a given time. Are you able to predict that or control it? So there's a lot of things that are really unpredictable about this system. And the fact that we don't know when things are going to flower and where the bats are going to find food means we don't really know where they're going to go next. We can predictably say that they'll go somewhere that there's food. Um, so there's that. Uh, we can't predict where they're going to move. I think as far as controlling it, We've sort of done that to our own detriment, right? So by massive deforestation efforts, we've actually sort of controlled where they can be and where they'll go. These guys are actually nomadic by nature. So they're used to being able to cover a lot of distance um, and fly to far away, far 
um, fly to sort of distant large blooming events. And I think we've um, what we're finding is that we've robbed them we've robbed them of that a little bit. So they're taking up residence in more um, sort of human areas, um, peri-urban or suburban areas where they can snack on things like fruit trees um, or other subpar substitute foods. And that's sort of where we're seeing them encounter um, new species. And that's part of the issue with the spillover to horses. So there's, you know, maybe there's fig trees or orange trees or mandarin trees, I guess it would be, um, that are in horse paddocks and not necessarily these preferred foods, but is enough that when these bats are sort of at, I don't know, in desperate places for um, finding calories, that they'll start to eat these these subpar substitute foods. Um, that then likely limits the amount that they can fly. So they may be getting stuck in these sort of feedback loops of if you start eating poorly, then you can only forage for what's nearby. So bats are really cool. And obviously, this virus is incredibly dangerous. But are you learning things that are sort of more generally applicable to, you know, broader studies of, of viruses and disease and emerging diseases? Yeah, definitely. Um, so, fact: these bats are super cool. Um, but also, of course, the um, the patterns that we're seeing with disease emergence and uh, these sort of larger public health and global health events are really important. And what we really want to do is to be able to understand the processes that underlie these observable things. So a lot of things have to happen before we see a spillover event or before we see disease emergence. And by the time we see that, it's too late. So what we really want to be able to do with these kinds of systems and these kinds of studies um, is to understand all the things that happen before a virus spills over or emerges. And the reason that Australia is a great system for this is because it's really data rich. So we're really able to go into a lot of data archives um, and um, information that's been meticulously collected over the past several decades and try to reconstruct some of the things that happened. And that's not always possible when we see sort of the final step of a viral spillover event. Um, but in this case, we're trying to leverage that data-rich system into better understanding what could have happened in other systems or what may be happening right now or in the future that we want to be able to worry about, uh, that we want to be able to get ahead of um, instead of just reacting to. And that's sort of the um, that's the place where we've been behind. We've been able to react to these events, but we haven't been able to get ahead of them and prevent them. And that's really the idea behind um, this large-scale project. So I'm working on the Australia side of Hendrovirus um, here, but there's a huge team that I work with that's working on the larger concept of Nipah viruses. And so that includes Nipah virus, um, which we talked about a little bit earlier um, and there's a team studying this system, or the NEPA system in Bangladesh. There's people in Madagascar and Ghana um, who are all working on different aspects of this group of viruses and what we're seeing about their dynamics in the bats, what we're seeing about the dynamics um, of spillover, and what we're seeing in the environment and environmental changes in recent history that might be driving some of these really important um, global health effects that we're seeing. So it, I think what kind of humanity usually wants is some sort of magic bullet cure that's going to take care of all these things. But it seems like what you're pointing to is that the changes need to come 
in human behavior. <laughs> how do you how do you address those things? Because I think those might be the, the sort of most difficult changes to make. Yeah, I definitely agree that human behavior is one of the most difficult things to change. Um, and sort of across a scales. Um, how do we change human behavior? Uh, often it's risk-based, right? <laughs> Communicating risk properly. Um, so I'll say I don't know, but I think that part of the issues here are um, sort of living in balance with the environment and resource consumption. A lot of the reason that the locations where we're seeing um, a, lot, a lot of this environmental damage occur are um, places that are beautiful because of their natural beauty, right? So they're, they're in demand. The value of the land has increased because of that. But essentially, the the increased demand and the limited resource is going to get to a point where the reason people want to live there is going to be lost. I don't actually know that as humanity we figured out how to curb that because there's a huge disparity in the financial resources that you have if you're on the, the development side versus the restoration or protection side. Um, I don't actually know that there's a really logical or clean way to reconcile that. Um, but there has to be a decrease in the motivation to stop destroying, a decrease in the motivation to destroy uh, natural resources. Just because it's something that we want doesn't mean that it's really what's going to work for the planet. So what are we learning from these emerging diseases? I think one of the things that we're learning every time we see a spillover event or emergence event is that things are out of balance. Um, we're looking at unhealthy ecosystems or detrimental interactions between different species or forced interactions. Um, and we're seeing the results of that. Um, we're seeing the symptoms, but not the underlying problem. And in that case, uh, what, I, what I mean in this case is, I think we're seeing the results of detrimental human behavior and what that does to a larger ecosystem. I think some of the things that we can learn from all of this and um, learn from disease spillover events is um, if we're the ones causing the problems, we're also the ones who can prevent the problems. Um, it's not too late to change our behavior, and it's not too late to change the ways that we're negatively impacting the world that sustains us. Climate change is obviously a huge part of it, but so is land use change and, and deforestation. Um, we can be a lot smarter about the way we occupy places and the resources that we take um, and what we really need. And I, I think that this is um, – a lot of these events really should be wake-up calls about what we're doing versus what we should be doing. So that was cool. Yeah, it's – I. number one, I love those bats. Yes. Number two, it's kind of interesting to see how, you know, human expansion is affecting the habitats of these bats and – it's not just affecting the bats, it's it's affecting the humans because now we're coming into contact with these things and it gives opportunity for diseases to spread. Right. So if you want to learn more about Nita's research or any of the research going on here at the Penn State Everly College of Science, we will have links in the show notes below. If you haven't already, be sure to check out our previous episodes. You can find us wherever you get podcasts and on YouTube and leave us a like, subscribe, and comment. Hey, Nate. Yeah, Sam. Yeah. Welcome to your playing with your computer. Nita, 
Um, I don't know what Nita does. So we are joined here in the studio by Nita Barty. She is the, um, yeah, she's the Huck. She is a Huck Early Career Professor and Assistant Professor of Biology, and she studies human health and infectious disease. How does she do it? Let's find out. Any research that involves those crazy giant bats is worth talking about. Exactly. <gasps> Look at him! I mean, I can't imagine you want a quantitative answer for that. If I could say seven. <laughs> right. <laughs> Just say yes. <laughs> Perhaps. Hey, Nate! Yes, yeah, Sam! <laughs> bats are really cool. <laughs> Especially big, soft, furry fruit bats. You should be their PR rep, really. That, that's just amazing. I love that. I love that. <laughs> I love that. <laughs>